Good morning, y'all. All right, good morning, good morning. I'm thankful that, uh, that you are here this morning. Lots of places you could be, but the Lord's got you here, I think, for a reason. Uh, if you're watching online, the same thing. He's, he's got you watching or listening on a podcast or whatever that may be. But he has, ordained, uh, he has ordained us to be together this morning, and we are we're coming to the end uh, of a series that, uh, that we, it's called A Tale of Ten Cities. So we're walking through the book of Acts, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and we, have, uh, we started at the very beginning of Acts. We're going to run all the way through the book, and each, you know, each section is a different series, and we've been in A Tale of Ten Cities, Paul's first missionary journey, I think since, uh, probably since the end of May, in Acts 13 is where that started. We're going to wrap up Acts 14 today, and we have seen Paul and Barnabas travel from Antioch in Syria having been called by the Holy Spirit. Just understand that the church in Antioch in Syria didn't call Paul and Barnabas. The Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas, and the church there commissioned them and sent them out, sent them out to share the Lord. And we saw them travel from Antioch in Syria, and I think we got a map up on the screen, yeah. We, we saw them travel from Antioch in Syria down into the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, and then up to Perga, and then to the, the, the area of the region called Galatia and all the different cities that are in Galatia that they traveled to. And we left off last week with Paul being uh, stoned and he was drug out of the city of Lystra and he was left for dead right, out the city, right outside of the city gates in Lystra. Verse 20 of Acts 14 tells us that the disciples gathered around him, the, the people had stoned him and, and the disciples had gathered around him and Paul rose up and he entered back into the city and the next day he and Barnabas left and went to a city called Derby. and Derby is about 60 miles or so southeast of Lystra and so we're going to pick up the story here in Acts 14 in verse 21. Before we start, let me pray for us real quick. Lord, we love you and it's an honor to be in your house today and worship you in song and in praise and, and Lord we ask you to be in the middle of this time together as we study your word and we dig into your word and, and Lord we pray that we would, we, would, we would learn from your word but not for the sake of knowledge Lord but for the sake of knowing you better for the sake of knowing you better and, and your influence in our life that we would go out and make a difference in a lost and dying world and so, Lord, we ask you again to be here and to, to, to bless this time that we have together to open up our hearts and our minds to your word, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, before we kind of jump into uh, to verse 21, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation And there. While there are arguably lots of different ministries in the church, at the end of the day, there are really two great ministries, two primary ministries, two uh, two critical ministries. First is the preaching of the gospel and disciple making, and those clearly go together. And then second, the strengthening of the church, the strengthening, and when I say the strengthening of the church, I mean the body of Christ, the, the believers uh, that come together. Well, that kind of, and I would say this, both of those ministries seem to, in our time that we live, they seem to be very neglected in today's church. And it kind of begs the question, how, how, just how are churches made strong? How does the strengthening of the body of Christ 
happen. And I think that is, and I believe that is, one of the major lessons in this last part of Acts 14, the end of Paul's first missionary journey. So task number one is to preach the gospel and make disciples, and task number two is to be committed to strengthening the church, the body of Christ. It's that first one. Let's talk about that first one for a minute. And that, that first great task to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they were missionaries and they were evangelists and, and their job, their task, their mission, their ministry is to preach the risen Christ, to preach the resurrected Christ, to preach the one that died on a cross and was put in a tomb dead and came out of that tomb alive. That's their mission. That's the mission of an evangelist. And that's exactly what, what they did. We saw it all over Acts 13 and 14. Verse 5 of Acts 13 says at Salamis they proclaimed the word of God. In verse 32 of Acts 13, it says, We bring you, Paul and Barnabas said, We bring you the good news. The good news is the gospel. And we see it over and over and over. Everywhere they went, they preached the risen Christ. They didn't preach a bunch of doctrine and theology. And listen, doctrine is important, don't get me wrong. But they preached the gospel, the core gospel message of the resurrected Christ. And then we see the ministry of Paul and Barnabas was to make disciples. Verse 21 says that they made many disciples, the Bible says. And those words in that original Greek language really translates that they had taught many. They taught many. So they had not only preached, they had taken these new believers and the Lord used the two of them to make disciples out of these folks. And at the end of the day, the Lord used them to make disciple makers. That's the way the body of Christ multiplies exponentially. And you know, it calls our minds back to Matthew 28, the end of Matthew, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 19. It's really just ni verse 19 and 20, and we call it the Great Commission. And here's what Jesus said. It says, go therefore and make disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I had commanded you. So make disciples in verse 19 and teach, teach folks to observe everything that Jesus commanded. And so where we're talking about here back in Acts 14, they are in a place called Derby. It's Derby. Derby was, the, was a frontier town. Derby was the, the further most east frontier town in the, this Roman empire that is called Galatia. It was on a major road running back through the country to Lystra. And if you look at history, this little bitty verse, even really just this little bitty part of this verse, where it says when they had preached the gospel to that city, that city is Derby. what you see in those two or three words is the founding of the church in Derby. And we'll see in Acts 16 and 18 that on Paul's second, third missionary journeys, he, he goes back to Derby. So sharing the gospel and disciple-making, super, super critical ministry of the church. Here, Church on the Trail, we want to be very, very intentional about spiritual growth, about discipleship. I have this vision in my mind that, that a, the, the way a church ought to be is people come in that front door 
and the church is like all these wheels and gears and cogs and people come in and some of the people that come in that are lost don't even know Christ and but 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 they go through this machine called the church and the church and when I say that the body the people are just pouring into them pouring love into them and pouring uh, uh, edification into them and pouring scripture into them and the wheels churn and churn and churn and down there at the end we all come out just disciple-making machines. That's the way that, that's the vision that I believe the Lord has for the church. And so we want to be intentional about that here. We believe this, that real growth is not just about Sunday mornings. Now, I love Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I love corporate worship. I love corporately singing together. I love uh, and am passionate about preaching the gospel, but it, it absolutely cannot be just about Sunday morning. Real growth we believe real growth, authentic growth, happens when you are involved in community. This is one-way communication on Sunday morning. This is really the, the Lord, hopefully I'm listening to what he says, and, and it's his words and not mine, but it's me preaching and you listening, and so that's one-way communication. But when you're involved in community, not just sitting in a worship service, it's different, it's two-way. And so we want to make that as, as simple as possible. And kind of in light of that, we're making a little bit of a change in, in the way that we do groups here. We're no longer going to use the language growth group and life group. We're going to use the language connect groups. And, he, and, and it's con, it has gotten confusing over the last two years. But, but y'all, the truth is the reason that we, we kind of started with uh, doing life groups a couple of years ago, and if you can take your mind back to the spring-ish of, of 2020, there was a real concern that the government was going to shut churches down. And we started life groups really so that if the government shut churches down, we would have little house churches all over Columbus and people could meet together. That was the whole reason that, well, that was the major reason that we did life groups. Well, we don't really have that concern anymore, and it seems like it's gotten confusing. So, so we Anything that we do in small groups of people is going to be called connect groups. It's just simple, way more simple. And these groups can, can, will, and do run the gamut from incredibly digging deep, verse-by-verse, word-by-word Bible studies to interest-based groups like pickleball, playing pickleball. Raise your hand if you ever play pickleball. You better raise your hand because she's going to be leading. Do you play pickleball? Well, the queen right there. So we're going to have a pickleball group in the, in, in the fall. Sunday supper clubs, just breaking bread together. Richard Moore is going to have, he's very creative in the name of his group. His group is going to be the, the Moore group. <laughs> very creative name. But it's just having a couple, once or twice a month, just having breaking bread together. Having fellowship. You know, it, it, it could be once a week um, gathering together to go over the Sunday table talk that's in your worship guide. Whatever we do, though, underneath the banner of Christ, and we have a lot right now, we have a lot of Bible studies going on Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday morning, Saturday morning, Tuesday night. There's lots of those. I don't want us to neglect the, some fellowship groups. There's going to be a group in the fall that's a Pinterest group. There's a Bible bunco group on Friday, on Friday nights. So my point is everything that we do together is underneath 
the banner of the Lordship of Christ. And so whether it's a, uh, years ago we had a group called Flashmo. Raise your hand if you remember Flashmo. Flashmo was four guys in a pickup truck and they had four lawnmowers in the back of the truck and they drove around Columbus looking for little old ladies, yards to need to be, that needed to be cut and they'd pull up, they'd jump out with four lawnmowers and in a flash they'd mow the yard. That's a cool group. Had, it could be a fishing group, it could be a, it, it, whatever it is, it is under the, the umbrella of Christ. And so we really, I really want to encourage you to, and you, to join a group. And, and if the Lord leads you to, 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 uh, to lead a group. We've tweaked and simplified the website, churchonthetrail.org, to that end. And groups are added all the time. Disciple making takes place when we're in community with each other. And it may spark here on Sunday morning, but it takes place when we do community together. Super critical disciple making. And then, and then in, the, in the latter part of verse 21, we see Paul and Barnabas begin to retrace their footsteps. They return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch of, of Pisidia. And there we see task number two because this return trip on, the, on this first journey, the return trip was mainly to strengthen the churches that they had planted on the outward leg of the trip. Strengthen the believers and, and encourage them, the Bible tells us, and to encourage them to continue in their faith. To continue in their faith because apparently the believers left behind in those cities were facing persecution from the very same folks that had attacked Paul and Barnabas. Paul even talks about it in verse 22. He talks about the, uh, uh, the tribulations. He says, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, that there's tribulations, that there's trials, that there's, that there's struggles. And, you know, strengthening, building up, making true disciples, and this may sound weird, but, but, but often making authentic disciples can be a lot harder than than actually leading someone to Christ. Leading people to the foot of the cross is a one-time decision. And no doubt, it is often a very difficult decision. And no doubt about it, it is always, always a huge and life-changing decision. But strengthening the body and, and making disciples involves a lot of decisions. Days and months and sometimes years Dealing with different personalities, different levels of spiritual growth, different levels of commitment, different emotions, different ages, opposing thoughts and ideas. And so this return trip that Paul and Barnabas are on, it paints a pretty clear picture, a pretty clear image of what is involved in the strengthening of the bodies uh, or the body of Christ in each one of these different locations. First is this, is to help them to be strong, to be established, helping and encouraging them to be firm in their faith. We need to be firm in our faith. We need to be firm in our, uh, in our belief. We need to know why we believe what we believe. And so that's part of it. Because new Christians, new believers, people that have very recently given their life to Christ, always stand in danger of wavering or being lured away or returning to a former sort of life. 
maybe placing too much weight on religious tradition, on little check boxes of do's and don'ts, maybe slipping back, maybe in danger of not studying and diving in Scripture consistently enough or not sharing your Jesus story with your friends or your family. So these people needed to be built up and they needed to be strengthened. And then Paul gives them warnings about persecution, words of encouragement that there will be persecution. There will be. And he tells them this to keep them from getting discouraged when it happens. For me, I'm telling you, you're going to be persecuted. I'm not saying that you're going to have your throat slit, but you're going to take some heat. And so Paul, in, in Scripture, encourages us to know how to defend that and, and, and encourages us not to get discouraged when that happens. We are given an incredibly beautiful assurance from Scripture that we will pass through it. We'll pass through it all. That the tribulation is going to end. The trials are going to end. That you will not be swallowed up by whatever it is and thrown into eternity lost and dying. And the reality is if the trial doesn't end on earth here in this life, then the Lord's going to usher you into heaven to be with Him forever. Y'all, two or three years ago, I was talking to a guy on the streets one night in our homeless ministry, M2540, we're on the street. And I was talking to this guy, and he said to me, he said that, that these, are, these are his words, he said, people have been telling me that if I decide to follow Jesus that everything will be good and that life will be perfect. And so for him, listen, y'all, and we giggle. I giggle when I think about it. But much of the world, and they may not have this idea that life's going to be perfect, but they sure have an idea that, that, uh, that if you, in this false idea, obviously, this false idea that is sold by false teachers, by the way, that say yes to the Lord and you'll be rich and you'll wake up and there'll be a new Mercedes Benz in your driveway and blah, blah, blah. Well, this is, this is what he said. He said that life will be somehow be perfect. And for him, that was a big check mark. If he had this, this list of pros and cons, yes to Jesus, no to Jesus, that, that whole idea is a big check mark on the pro side. Well, that presented me with a little bit of a dilemma. Like, because I'm an evangelist. Like, like I want to see people say yes to the, to the offer. And so there's a temptation to continue on in that line of, like, that train of thought with this guy. Try to get him to say yes to the gospel. But I'm not going to try to get somebody to say yes to a false gospel. I mean, it's absurd. All this health and wealth and prosperity stuff. So I said to him, I said, no, nah, and I can tell you right where we were. We were in the water park, um, the Columbus Waterworks water park, water park at 3rd Avenue. And it's not Tolbleton Road, but whatever street that is. I just said I can tell you exactly where it was, and then I said wherever that is, but <laughs> sorry about that. But here's what I said to him. I said, no, nah, bro, that's not how it works. Like, like it doesn't work that way. And he kind of looked at me funny, and I said, the reality is that you may accept Jesus and find that your, your circumstances that are bound by time, they may not necessarily change. I pray that they do. I pray that you're... Your mind is renewed, and your circumstances change, but your circumstances may not change. He, so he, said, what, he said, what are you talking about? 
And I said, you may find that your, that your friends reject you, that your family tells you that you've lost your mind. If you got a job, you may lose your job. I said, there's a lot of tough stuff that, can, that, that may happen. You say yes to the gospel, it, it, you just may have tough stuff. And he looked me right in the eyes and he asked this obvious question, well, why in the world would I want to do it then? Why in the world would I want to follow him? And y'all, it's sad, but that's a question that, that, that stumps a lot, of, a lot of Christians. Because somehow we have been sold this idea that we have to polish up the cross. That we have to wipe the blood all off of Jesus to somehow make him look better. To make him somehow look more attractive. Like he needs for us to sell him to people. And if we don't do that, they'll say, no, y'all, that ain't the gospel. The cross was bloody. It should have been my blood and your blood, but make no bones about it. The cross was bloody and messy, and ministry is bloody and messy. And so I looked at him, and, and, and he's saying, why would I ever want to say yes to that? And I said, Donnie, his name was Donnie. I said, Donnie, because it's true. Because it's all true. The gospel's true. Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And I said, we believe it because it's true. And those on the side of truth come to Jesus. So there will be trials and tribulations, y'all, in our lives. And the reason is because the world has fallen. The reason is because of what happened in the garden. We live in a broken, fallen world. But Christ. But, but the cross in verse 23, verse 23 says, And when they, they, Paul and Barnabas, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And so you see in verse 23 that a, that a component, as they went back and retraced their footsteps, a component of building up and strengthening the churches is to bring some organization into each one of those places. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. They committed them to the Lord. They commissioned them. They ordained them, much the way that that Antioch church in Syria had commissioned Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. And by the way, this is the first place, really, uh, first reference in church history to this elder thing. And so elders have a very, hold a very important place in a church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this is Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's writing in First and Second Timothy uh, to Timothy about how to set up a church and how to shepherd a body of believers. And so he gives Timothy the qualifi- and us the qualifications of an elder. Scripture describes the whole thing as a plurality of elders. And it doesn't tell us anywhere in Scripture that there's to be a certain number. It just says elders. In addition, the evidence of Scripture is that those that are called to be an elder and meet the qualifications of being an elder are appointed or chosen by those who are already functioning as elders. That's the model that we use at Church on the Trail. And you know why we, why we use that model? Somebody tell me why we use that model. Because it's biblical. That's why we use the model. Because Scripture directs us and tells us exactly the way they did it. That's the reason that we do that. And we have a plurality of elders. I'm an elder in the church. I'm one of a group of men. I'm not 
I don't count for two because I'm somehow, quote, the lead pastor, which, by the way, is not even an office that even exists. I'm just an elder. Just an elder, just a shepherd like all the other elders in the church. So that's the model that we use here. And the elder, Scripture tells us that elders' job is to watch out for the souls of the flock. According to 1 Peter 5, they are to rule, 1 Timothy chapter 5 tells us. They are to labor hard among the flock, working diligently. It's in 1 Thessalonians. They are accountable to the Lord for what they do with the flock. Y'all, that's a big deal. Elders are accountable for what they do with the, in shepherding the flock of believers. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that. They are to pattern their lives after Jesus. They are to be firm but be gentle. They are to, to teach the word and feed the flock. They are to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. And on top of all of that, to be patient with everybody. First Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that. So we see Paul and Barnabas, we see them helping the believers in each one of these places that they go back to get organized with spiritual leaders that can help them grow. Churches grow under spirit-led leaders, both lay folks and vocational pastors. And I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you to pray for the leadership of our church. In fact, to pray for the leadership in every church. Because the gospel's getting preached all over the place in Columbus every Sunday morning. Pray for the leaders in, in every church. Support them when the time comes. And if God puts his finger on you to lead somewhere, humbly accept that role. Look at verse 24. It says, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Now you remember, Paul and Barnabas had faced stoning in Lystra. They'd faced crazy violent mobs of Gentiles and Jews in Iconium. They faced a jealous, manipulating band of influential Jews in Pisidian Antioch. And regardless of all of that, they retraced their footsteps exactly, heading back to each place that they had been, prayerfully calling and commissioning elders like was, meant, like was mentioned in verse 23, as well as strengthening the believers in each one of those churches and offering encouragement to continue in the faith that was mentioned in verse 22. And Paul and Barnabas were thoughtful, they were thorough, they were, they were loving and faithful church planners, missionaries, pastors, evangelists. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's writing back to the church at Thessalonica. Chapter 2, he says this, talking to the believers in Thessalonica. He says, for you know how like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and we encouraged you and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in a manner worthy of God, the, the one who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so they're on this return trip and maybe, maybe not, they planted a church in Perga on the way, on their outward leg of the journey. We don't actually know. But on the way back, verse 25 says that they spoke the word there. It's my belief that on the way back, what we see in verse 25 is that they stayed there, and we don't know how long they stayed there uh, in Perga, but I believe they stayed there long enough to plant a church, appoint elders, 
and pour into that body and get that church in Perga going. The point is this. They were just as busy following up and strengthening the, the churches as they had been when they were establishing all those churches. Now look at verse 26. It says, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So this is Antioch of Syria. They, they're heading back to the mother church. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. So finally they set sail from this seaside city called Italia and they traveled back to Antioch in Syria where they had been sent from. And Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that that first missions work, this first great missions work, has been fulfilled or it's been completed. Verse 27 tells us that they gathered up the church there. All the folks, they had a big old church meeting to let everybody know what had happened on their, tri on their trip. It's just like in churches today, if, if a church sends missionaries off into Zambia in Africa or somewhere, they're going to come home once a year and sit down with the church that sent them out and let them know what happened. People are people. We're no different than they were then. And so that church wants to know from Paul and Barnabas, how did it go? And we think that they, and we believe that their trip was sometime between a year and a year and a half. So they had been gone for a while. And even though Paul and Barnabas had been the subjects of the story, they made it crystal clear that the real work had been done by the Lord. That God was the one that blew open the door of faith and salvation to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas had witnessed it with their very own eyes. And I can honestly, I can only imagine their excitement as they get in this meeting and they begin to tell everybody what had happened. You know, imagine being a fly on the wall. Somebody in the church raises their hand. Some dude named, some dude named Fred raises it. Fred, no, it ain't Fred. Roman name. Antonius. Antonius raises up his hand and he says, was it worth it? Like, Brother Paul, was it worth it? Barnabas, like, what, was it worth it? And then you imagine the scene as, as they recount all this stuff that Luke records in Acts about ships and magic men and sorcerers and about Roman government officials bending their knees and coming to faith in Christ. About powerful political enemies spouting hate and smear campaigns. There was mob scenes. There was super stealthy, fast kind of escapes. Telling about one time when Paul is left for dead. Imagine all the, all the names and all the faces that they told about. Because each Jesus story is tied to a particular individual name and face. No doubt, Paul and Barnabas, they went on and on about these new faces, these brand new brothers and sisters in Christ, and that privileged moment that they got to witness when, and it was repeated hundreds and hundreds of times, when somebody came to faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ. When the spark of faith ignited into this roaring blaze, and, and for sure there had been horrible difficulties 
But none of those difficulties were bad enough to erase the thrill of seeing that fire in somebody's heart. And none of those difficulties were scary enough to diminish the want to to go out and find more faces. Listen, if you can, if you can picture this, picture them as modern-day missionaries, it'd be like scrolling through slides on a big screen with images from every city that they visited. You'd imagine one face after sin. That is, go back to that last slide real quick. The last, that is actually Lystra. So that's Lystra. That's what they saw. Now you can go to the next one. You imagine one face after the next. Flying across the screen behind me, all the people who had given their lives to Christ, each individual person. And you, you would see a picture, Paul throws a picture up of, of a bull with a wreath around his neck. And that was what those, if you remember back last week or the week before, the people there tried to sacrifice the bull to Paul and Barnabas because they thought Paul and Barnabas was Zeus and Hermes. And so there, you would see these pictures flying across the screen. Me and you, we'd cry together as we look at photos of, that Barnabas took on his little iPhone of Paul lying half dead outside the, the city gates of Lystra after he had been stoned. You'd see this beautiful harbor at, a, at, at Italia. You'd see the picturesque mountains north of Iconium because that's where they were, and that's the mountains of Iconium. And then you, me and you were watching all this stuff, and we would ooh and ah at the sunset shots that, that Paul and Barnabas took looking back towards Italia on the way home to Syrian Antioch, the Mediterranean, crazy Mediterranean sunsets. If Paul was standing here, and, he, and Barnabas probably be off into the shadows because Barnabas was an encourager and Barnabas kind of a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. I can guarantee you one thing they would want you to hear and see and feel more than anything, and that would be the images of the new Christians, the people who got saved. Look at those two. Just, just look. Their whole life and destiny is different. That's what Paul would say. Look at the small group of people, men and women together, and look at the look at the peace on her face. Y'all, life is different, and your circumstances may not change because your circumstances are bound by time. But you have joy where you didn't have joy, and you have hope where you were hopeless. That's the look of peace and hope. And love. Oh my gosh, y'all got to hear this dude's story. This dude's a captain in the army. And he gave us this picture, this is Paul talking. He said he gave us this picture when he was a first lieutenant. Paul's like, Barnabas, you remember? He said, you remember? He was dying. And you shared Joshua with him. And he said, yes. Paul's like, he said yes to the offer. And if you remember praying with him the next day, he passed away and he went to be with Joshua. Paul would say it was such a beautiful thing to see. And he'd tell y'all, because y'all are the church, 
He'd say, you see this family? See this man and wife? He said, Barnabas, you remember when we shared the gospel with them in Iconium and they were saved? And the way they just started digging into the word and they loved the gospel of Matthew and they couldn't get enough of it. He said, oh, it was awesome. He said, and after we turned around from Derby and headed back and went to Lystra and then went back up to Iconium, by the time we got back up there, they had led their two kids to Christ. So he said, was it worth it? Paul looks into that, that Tony dude that asked that question. He said, you ought to ask them if it was worth it. Was it worth it? Was it worth the trouble? Flip back to that one more time, the family. I think they would tell you that it was worth it. I want to tell you a little story. This boy's walking, uh, walking on the beach one day. He sees this man pick up a starfish and chunk it back into the water. And the boy asked him, he's like, Mr., like, why'd you do that? And the guy said, because the tide's going out and that starfish dry out and die and he'd probably be long dead before the tide comes back in and the boy said what in the world difference could it possibly make he said there's thousands and millions and gajillions of starfish out in that water what difference does it make if you just throw that one that one back in so that one can live and that man said well it makes a huge difference to that one makes a huge difference to that one and the man smiled he walks on down the beach maybe he goes to find another starfish Y'all, what difference does it make? Like, what difference does it make on an outreach on a Monday night underneath the Dillingham Street Bridge if we hand a Bible to somebody? What difference does it make? What difference does it make if you hand a little gospel tract to somebody at the gas station? What difference does it make if you write an encouraging note to a nine-year-old in our kids' ministry? What difference does it make if you're on the golf course playing nine holes with a buddy and you share your Jesus story? You share how you went from death to life. Well, I mean, what difference does it make? What, what difference does it make if, if you sacrificed a little bit in order to help send missionaries to the jungle in Africa to dig a well? Like, what difference does that make? Well, like that lame man that the Lord used Paul and Barnabas to heal in Lystra, the dude that hadn't walked ever in his life, Made a difference to him. One by one, individuals. People don't necessarily come to trust in Christ in big groups. It's not like group salvation. Honestly, that became a second, third century way of, quote, making Christians. People trust in Christ one by one. One by one by one. Like a starfish that that dude threw back in the water. People receive an opportunity for life by hearing the gospel. The whole gospel. By seeing you and me walk the gospel out. Even if we don't even say anything for weeks. But they look at your life. They look at you serve each other. They look at you serve out in the community. And they look at you serve. Serving is not a one day thing. If we're called as a Christ follower, we, our life should be a life of service. We should be serving every day of our life. You're an influencer. 
You may not want to be, and you may not think you are, but you, every one of us is an influencer. And we're influencing people towards the cross, or we're influencing people to run away from the cross. It's one by one. You make a difference. You do. One by one. A bunch of teenage girls at a sleepover, and one of them doesn't know Jesus, and, and the girls share Christ with her. You're a teacher at school, and you're in the break room in relationship with somebody. You're in the, in the break room talking to another teacher, and you just share your story. You don't clobber them upside the head with the Bible. Just share Christ with them. Y'all, you're at the barbecue joint with a coworker having lunch. Just share your story with them. You're on the pickleball court. You share your story. You serve. You're kind. You don't need to polish that cross up, and you don't need to wipe the blood off of Jesus. You just need to be kind and compassionate and be a mirror for Christ. They should look at me and you and see Jesus. What's more attractive than that? They should look at you and your life and the witness of your life and say, what's different about you? You just tell them what's different about you. I want what you've got. That's that's the way people need to look at us. The problem, y'all, is so often we turn people away because we act like fools. We should be mirrors for the gospel. Be aware of what's going on around you. I mean, you're at the Waffle House having some scattered and smothered, and the waitress walks up, and you just say, Honey, is there anything that we can pray for you about? Everything okay? Because I can promise you the waitress at the Waffle House is stressing. What a witness it is if in kindness... You just pray with her. You make a difference. Oh my gosh, you make a difference. And you influence. Be a witness for him. Serve each other and folks in the community. And not not to call attention to yourself. Like totally not to call attention to yourself. Jesus said it so many different ways. When you pray, don't pray in the streets like the Pharisees do. Praying so loud that the person seven blocks away can hear, point and look at how holy I am. No. When you serve a meal to somebody somewhere, be quiet about it. Don't do it to bring accolades to yourself. And we got to check ourselves all the time because we can do that. For sure we can do that. Don't post on Facebook, look how holy and great I am because I just fed the homeless guy. No, don't do that. Like, don't do that. I want you to think about Paul and his fervor, his fervor to see people come to Christ. And we talk about sharing the gospel all the time. All the time. And if you're here today and you don't know him, 
And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that life's going to be a bed of roses because it's probably not. But I can tell you this, your eternity will change and the lineage of your family will probably change. And there will be people, if the Lord doesn't come back before then, a thousand years from now, hundreds of people will be following Christ because of a decision that you made right here, right now. And it ain't hard. It is as simple as you, you and me and you had sin that has to be paid for and we can pay for it ourselves or we can allow him to pay for it. And so the Lord through scripture calls us to repent, to turn away from that sin, to turn towards him, to believe that the death on that cross took care of the sin and that he walked out of a grave alive and allowed for us to live with him for eternity. Y'all scholars call that the great exchange. The great exchange. There ain't no better deal ever in the history of the world. He gets my sin and I get his righteousness. Are you kidding me? That's the greatest deal ever. It's the greatest exchange. And so if you've never, if you've never done that, if you've never accepted that, if you've never believed that, let's do that today. At a minimum, don't go to sleep tonight without considering it, seriously considering it. So y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that I turn away from my sin, that I turn towards you, that I accept and I believe that your death took care of my sin, and Lord, I cry out to you, save me right now. And I know you will. So I confess that with my mouth. And I believe that you walked out of a grave alive and says, Lord, save me. So, Father, I, I pray for everybody within earshot. Lord, I lift them up. I lift their families up to you. Lord, that you would hold on to them. Lord, anybody here that is made a commitment and given their lives to Christ. Lord, I pray for them in the days that come. Lord, I pray that they would be connected in community with other believers here or somewhere. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength. Your word says to hold fast to the faith. Lord, that in the middle of some sort of a trial, whatever it may be, that they would cling to you and not other things. Lord, I lift us all up to you. In Jesus' name, amen.